to The People's Scientist, the podcast dedicated to helping us optimize our health with the latest scientific findings on nutrition, health, and medicine. I, your host, Dr. Stephanie Caligiuri, will be here with you every single week, bringing us information to ignite our thinking to help us be one step closer to the healthiest we can be. People Scientist Army, and welcome back for another episode on the People Scientist Podcast, where every week I arm you with some scientific knowledge so you can lead the healthy life you want to live. This week we are talking about sugars and high fructose corn syrup. And the information I have to share with all of you, I bet, will surprise many of you. So let's jump right into it. Let's start off with a core takeaway from today's episode. Now, sugar comes in many forms, including sucrose, glucose, fructose, and high fructose corn syrup. Some studies illustrate that fructose is worse than glucose because it does not suppress appetite like glucose does. And therefore, it can lead to people that eat more calories and may result in weight gain. Because of this data, high fructose corn syrup has been demonized in the last decade. But let's make one thing clear. High fructose corn syrup is not the same thing as pure fructose. High fructose corn syrup is actually not that much different in composition than regular old table sugar. Table sugar contains 50% fructose, whereas high fructose corn syrup contains either 42% or 55% fructose. In studies comparing table sugar to high fructose corn syrup, there doesn't appear to be big differences on metabolism and levels of hormones that regulate appetite. But due to the versatility of high fructose corn syrup to be easily added to foods, high fructose corn syrup is more likely to be hidden in many quote-unquote healthy foods. So in the end, look at your food ingredients and choose foods that are low in sugars of all kinds, including high fructose corn syrup. Now with that message, let's jump into the details. Here's a little bit of background on sugars in our diet. Table sugar is sucrose, which is comprised of 50% glucose and 50% fructose. Glucose is readily used in our body for energy, and that is what contributes to our blood glucose levels and what we need to keep within a healthy range, particularly if we have diabetes. Fructose is thought to be called fructose because it is a fruit sugar. But this can be a bit misleading because fruits contain a combination of both glucose and fructose. Glucose and fructose both act differently in our body. They are absorbed differently, are metabolized a bit differently, and can have different effects on our hormones that regulate our feelings of fullness and hunger. Sun and Empey in 2012 reviewed the metabolism of sugars in the body. They concluded that fructose itself is retained more by the liver and glucose is used in the body for energy more readily. Fructose elicits less of an insulin response than glucose. Now, if you remember back in episode three where we talk about fasting and the ketogenic diet, I discuss insulin with all of you. Now, insulin is the building fat storage hormone of the body. Now, the fact that fructose elicits less of an insulin response compared to glucose could be viewed as both a good and a bad thing. Insulin is what contributes to fat storage in the body, so when people are trying to lose weight, reducing sugar intake and keeping insulin levels low is very helpful. 
That is one argument as to how a ketogenic diet that is lower in carbohydrates and protein can help elicit weight loss. However, insulin also helps stimulate satiety hormones that make us feel full and reduce our appetite. So it is thought that eating fructose may not suppress our appetite like glucose does and could potentially lead us to eat more in the long run. Teff and colleagues in 2004 reported that eating fructose resulted in alterations to satiety hormones. Now here's a little bit of background on satiety hormones. We have hormones that are released that tell our brain that we are full and should stop eating. One such hormone is leptin. And in fact, in animal models that have a leptin deficiency, they actually tend to overeat and gain copious amounts of weight and have an obese phenotype. So we know that leptin plays a very important role in our ability to feel full and to tell our brain to stop eating. We also have hunger hormones such as ghrelin that tell our brain we are hungry and that we need to eat. Teff and colleagues observed that fructose results in less leptin in the blood and more ghrelin in the hours following the intake of fructose versus drinking a drink sweetened with glucose. This means that drinking fructose may lead to less satiety and feeling more hungry. They also noted that fructose caused a rise in triglyceride levels, those circulating fats in our blood. I mentioned this in previous episodes, and that is why refined carbohydrates and fructose can increase our risk of heart disease. It is thought that if we have more circulating fats or triglycerides in our blood, then we are at a higher risk of heart attack and stroke. Now, because I am a neuroscientist, I always have to bring the brain into our topics that we discuss. So Purnell and colleagues published some functional MRI data when people were infused with glucose or fructose to understand which brain regions are recruited with these different sugars. Now they looked at the bold signal. Now bold signal is an indication of blood flow or recruitment of a particular brain region. The scientists noted that the bold signal in the cortical control areas of the brain increased during glucose infusion, corresponding with the increased plasma glucose and insulin levels. In contrast, the bold signal decreased in the cortical control areas of the brain during fructose infusion, corresponding with increases of plasma, fructose, and lactate. So the effects on the brain of glucose and fructose were actually opposite. Glucose and fructose did not significantly alter the bold signal of the hypothalamus, which was surprising because the hypothalamus is an important brain region regulating food intake and appetite. So it appears that these two sugars may not differentially impact the effect on the hypothalamus part of the brain, but they do indeed impact the cortical control areas of the brain. I think one of the landmark clinical trials that really set the idea that fructose is detrimental to our health was published back in 2015 by Luo and colleagues. These scientists had investigated the effects of fructose and glucose on brain region recruitment and the motivation to obtain high calorie foods. They concluded that ingestion of fructose resulted in smaller increases in plasma insulin levels and greater brain responses to food cues in the visual cortex and the left orbital frontal cortex of the brain versus eating glucose. Ingestion of fructose also led to greater hunger and desire for food and a greater willingness to give up long-term money rewards in order to obtain immediate high-calorie foods. Now, these results were quite shocking. 
What these conclusions mean is that eating fructose appeared to activate brain regions that respond to food more strongly than when people ate glucose. In addition, when people ate fructose, they were far more motivated to obtain high-calorie foods, even if that meant losing money. So perhaps fructose plays on the brain in a way that predisposes us to eat more. This data, I think, is, is really what started to fuel the demonization of fructose in our diet. But beyond that impact on our brain and the motivation to obtain food, there are other reports about the detrimental effects of fructose. A report by Aragno in 2017 illustrated that fructose is more likely to generate advanced glycation end products than glucose alone. I've mentioned advanced glycation end products in previous episodes and how they can increase the risk of heart disease and even cancer. So I do think that there is an abundance of clinical data to support that fructose acts differently on the brain and may increase appetite versus glucose. But I do want to make one clear distinction, and that is pure fructose as studied in these clinical trials is not the same thing as high fructose corn syrup. So let's talk about high fructose corn syrup now. John S. White has written several great articles on high fructose corn syrup, and their papers will serve as the reference for some of the evidence I'm about to share. So why did fru high fructose corn syrup come into the food market in the first place? Well, sugarcane is traditionally grown in countries that are near the equator, and some of these countries at the time were suffering from both political and climatic instabilities. So as a result, the availability and price of sugar for the United States fluctuated wildly. So American food producers wanted a source of sugar that was more steadily available. Well, corn is grown very well and vastly in the United States, and corn also happens to be very rich in carbohydrates and sugars. So the onset of producing corn starch and corn syrup happened. And corn syrup also happens to be better easily incorporated into beverages and foods than sugars. It's more versatile than table sugar for food production. Now, the thing is, corn syrup itself is made up of 100% glucose. But glucose is not as sweet as fructose. So food producers wanted to convert some of the glucose to fructose in the corn syrup to make it sweeter so that they wouldn't have to use as much of the corn syrup, which they thought was a good thing. If they use less corn syrup, then that means they save money, and that also means that there's less calories in the food item. So because they convert some of the glucose to fructose, they named it high fructose corn syrup. But in truth, high fructose corn syrup is not necessarily higher in fructose than regular old table sugar. Table sugar, or sucrose, consists of 50% glucose and 50% fructose, as I mentioned earlier. Now, the most common forms of high-fructose corn syrup contain either 42% or 55% fructose. And these are referred to in the food industry as high-fructose corn syrup 42 and high-fructose corn syrup 55. Now, high-fructose corn syrup 42 is mainly used in cereals, baked goods, and some beverages. High fructose corn syrup 55 is used primarily in soft drinks. Now the primary difference between table sugar and the common forms of high fructose corn syrup are that high fructose corn syrup contains water. In high fructose corn syrup, the glucose and the fructose are in the free form, whereas in table sugar, glucose and fructose are bound by a chemical link that the stomach enzymes can very easily cleave. So I think the fear of high fructose corn syrup was really clouded by the clinical data looking at pure fructose. And by association, the name high fructose corn syrup became associated with the detrimental results of pure fructose. 
But in truth, according to the data, table sugar and high fructose corn syrup appear to be equally bad. They're not really that different from each other. Melanson in 2007 compared consuming high fructose corn syrup to table sugar, which in my opinion is really the best comparison to make as we do not typically consume pure fructose. So in this clinical trial, 30 women without diabetes and of normal weight were asked to consume a beverage sweetened with sucrose, which is table sugar, or to consume a beverage sweetened with high fructose corn syrup. The scientists then measured many parameters in their blood for the hours to follow. The scientists noted that there were no differences for blood glucose, insulin, or the satiety hormones leptin and ghrelin, and no differences in the amount of calories or macronutrients that they ate the following day. If anything, the participants' desire to eat was greater in the sucrose intervention two days following the sucrose intake. So there really doesn't appear to be much of a difference between high fructose corn syrup and table sugar. But the thing about high fructose corn syrup that may be worse than regular table sugar is that high fructose corn syrup is more versatile and is very easily incorporated into foods and is therefore more likely to be hidden in quote unquote healthy foods. Now, high fructose corn syrup can commonly be found in salad dressings, whole grain bread, yogurts, granola bars, TV dinners, canned fruit, breakfast cereal, and energy drinks, and of course, sodas. In truth, I think this is what makes high fructose corn syrup more dangerous than regular sugar because it is more easily incorporated into quote unquote healthy foods. But when it comes down to it, sugar, no matter which form they're in, do not provide our body any benefits other than a quick source of energy that is only useful in very particular situations, such as in marathon runners, for example. Sugar in every form can have a detrimental effect on our health. Ludwig in 2001 showed that sugar-sweetened beverages were associated with childhood obesity. In 2002, Michaud illustrated that high-refined carbohydrate intake was associated with pancreatic cancer in women. Huang in 2014 showed that one serving of sugar-sweetened beverages increased heart disease risk by 16%. Lung in 2014 showed that sugar-sweetened beverages shortened our telomeres, which is an indication of our cells aging. So sugars may increase the speed at which our body ages. Aragno in 2017 reviewed that high intakes of sugar produce advanced glycation end products, which are implicated in many diseases such as heart disease, cancer, and dementia. And the list of the detrimental effects of sugar on our health goes on. Particularly, sugars are known to increase body weight and the risk for obesity. And I want to bring you back to episode three where I talk about intermittent fasting and the ketogenic diet. In that episode, I discussed with all of you that insulin is our building and fat storage hormone. Now, two things are known to stimulate insulin. One is carbohydrates such as sugars and the other is protein. Now, sugars stimulate insulin to the greatest magnitude. And storage of fat in our body will happen when we have high insulin levels. So if we want to lose fat, we need to lower our insulin levels. And this means reducing sugars in any form. In my opinion, based on the scientific literature, table sugar is just as bad as high fructose corn syrup, and both should be eliminated from the diet. But unfortunately, sugars are so widespread in our food supply. Back in 2008, Wang concluded that children and adolescents today derive 10 to 15% of their calories 
from sugar-sweetened beverages and fruit juices, and the amount of sugar that they consume continues to climb as the years go on. The Committee on Nutrition in 2001 published that juice should not be introduced into the diet of infants before six months of age, that infants should not be given juice from bottles or easily transportable covered cups that allow them to consume juice easily throughout the day, and it should not be provided to them at bedtime. They also say to limit the amount of fruit juice to children to four to six ounces per day, and that children should be encouraged to eat whole fruits instead of fruit juice in order to meet their micronutrient intake. It is thought that whole fruit itself is better than consuming fruit juice, which I think for the most part is true, as fruit contains the fiber matrix, which should slow sugar release into the blood, and the fiber matrix of fruit can also contain other beneficial components such as abscisic acid and polyphenols. In 1981, Bolton and colleagues published a study that found eating the whole fruit versus the fruit juice resulted in greater measures of feeling full and less appetite following the consumption of the fruit versus fruit juice. So that's a good thing. However, in the same study, they concluded that eating grapes elicited a larger blood insulin response than grape juice itself. So the idea that fruits are better than fruit juice for blood sugar and insulin levels may not always be true. Remember that fruits do contain sugar and eating a lot of fruit still contributes to our sugar intake because in the end, sugar is still sugar. My personal preference is to put focus on eating vegetables rather than fruit as vegetables have many of the same nutrients as fruits but are far lower in sugar. So that is a wrap on this week's episode of the People Scientist podcast. In brief summary, I think high fructose corn syrup was wrongfully demonized because of the clinical data coming out on pure fructose and the fact that pure fructose is not as satiating as glucose. However, the effects of high fructose corn syrup appear to be similar to table sugar. and In my opinion, both are equally bad. So please don't think that if you drink a soda that is sweetened with sugar, that you're doing a good thing instead of drinking a soda with high fructose corn syrup because both are bad. The one thing that is worse about high fructose corn syrup is the fact that it is easily hidden in foods that are thought to be healthy, such as yogurts, whole grain bread, and salad dressings. So please do look at your ingredient lists of the foods you buy and try to choose food items that do not contain any form of sugar. And that includes sucrose, fructose, glucose, corn syrup, or high fructose corn syrup. Or the next best option is to choose a food item that has these sugars listed much lower in the ingredient list, as opposed to being one of the first few ingredients, because that will mean that there's less of that ingredient. No matter what shape sugar comes in, we know it has detrimental effects on our health, and it is best to avoid it whenever we can. If you need tips on how to cut out sugar from your diet, go back to episode one, where I talk about the neuroscience of sugar addiction and how we can brain hack our way out of it. So until next week, I hope you all have a super healthy week and I will meet you back here at the same time in the same place on the People Scientist Podcast. I am a scientist simply sharing scientific evidence. Some of the clinical interventions I discuss are not appropriate for everyone. Before making any changes to your diet or lifestyle, please do consult the advice of your physician or dietitian. My opinions expressed here do not necessarily reflect those of Mount Sinai Hospital and its affiliates. Thank you.